The following is brought to you courtesy of the No Phony Podcast Network, home of independent awesomeness. Critics beat me up for that, but the picture did quite well financially. And they wanted more shark, more shark, more shark. And I would go to Spielberg and talk to him about this idea of this, this shark movie. Ahoy, Casey. How you doing, buddy? Ahoy. That's going to be my new thing. Everybody's got a thing, like an entrance, you know, a phrase or a, a wrestlers come out, you know, to, to music. My new thing is going to say ahoy instead of hello. Just yeah. like that. Yeah, you're not liking it. Yeah. Just ahoy. Yeah, I'm going to get rid of it. You know what? I don't like it anymore. It was brilliant. <laughs> Three seconds ago, I was like, what am I going to say to kick this thing off? And ahoy popped into my head. Well, it kind of ties in with today's episode, if you would say ahoy matey, right? Well, we didn't interview anything uh, related to pirates. No, but like boats, right? Yeah, that's true. I guess Jaws was a water in a boat sort of yeah. thing. All right. Well, then ahoy. Ahoy, Casey. <laughs> How's it going with you, man? It's going, man. It's going. I've been busy. Went back to work again this week. Out to, uh, drove out to Missouri. I'm back. Did a few jobs. Felt kind of good to get back on the on the roof and do a little work. You know what's so funny about you, man? It's like how many times have I been like, "Hey, come on over and hang out," and you're like, "Oh, I can't. I can't come over. I can't hang out." So, Casey, come on over, hang out. Let's have a couple beers. Can't do it. Why? Why can't you do it? And then you send me like a picture of a house. You're like, "I just built a house." (laughs) What was it the other day? I just built this entire greenhouse garden. I'm like, what in the fuck? When do you find time to do all this? And then you're traveling all the time. Do you ever put down, to, I guess when you're doing podcasting, and that's the only time you ever put down a hammer? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, man. It's, today I didn't do anything. Today, the only thing I did today was editing of a uh, podcast, my other show, On the Road with Jim and Casey. You plug it every time. Uh, it, it's masterful the way that you work that plug in. <laughs> I mean, it's really good. <laughs> and it's a good show, so it's. It's totally fine with me. Well, Casey, we have an interview today. Yes, you set up another good one. One that I uh, definitely appreciated because this is a, a director. This is a production designer and an art designer um, or an art director. I never get the titles right, but he's done so many things in uh, 80s cinema, right? All the stuff that I've grown up watching, all the stuff you've grown up watching, right? I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Jaws series. I'm a huge fan of everything Steven Spielberg. I'm a big fan of John Carpenter, uh, Escape from New York, he was part of. So who did you, who did you get for us here, Casey? So uh, today we uh, will be talking to uh, Joe Alves. He was the production designer, like you said, on the Jaws movies, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Fire Down Below, Drop Zone, Geronimo, Free Jack, Escape from New York. I mean, the list goes on and on. Free Jack was started, good, too. He started as, a, uh, as an animator for Disney in 1956. 
And then wow. uh, he, he did a lot of uh, the Night Galleries. I, th- I think he did all but one episode of Night Gallery. Do you remember that show? Yeah. Wow. Yep. I'd like to hear a lot about the way things are made because we only see the final product. And then rumors sneak out about, you know, was it a bad uh, production or was it a troubled production? And, um, you know, everything that was made in the 80s seemed to be very rushed, seemed to be very uh, just – but but also very creative, you know. Like there was a lot more imagination going on in the '80s, and I think there's a lot than there than there is uh, in a lot of movies now, you know. Because now we have the internet, we've seen all these places, you know. But these movies back then, they took us on trips that we never were able to to go on. That I grew up, you know, loving Disney World and loving Sea World. And when he directed Jaws three, he directed in Sea World. He fucked all that up for me. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, because now I can't even see Sea World without thinking about a giant shark in 3d smashing through the glass and attacking people. It's one of those, one of those great, like when when somebody says to me, what do you remember about the eighties? I remember a really poorly animated shark smashing through glass while I wore 3d glasses. (laughs) And even then I went, what the fuck is going on? here?" (laughs) So it's a great movie. It's got some, uh, it's got some uh, warts, I guess. But, you know, he's not, you said to me, you know, that he's not really afraid to, to talk badly about the movie. He knows what the movie is. I think it's absolutely great. Yeah, another thing that we talked about with him, uh, we got his take on uh, CGI, how he feels about CGI, which I thought was really interesting. Because the way I feel about, like you were saying about the 80s, movies in the 80s, the way I feel, you get a better reaction from the actors when it was... You know, a lot li- not a live shark, but a, like a an actual prop or an actual monster dressed in whatever than you do from an actor pretending something's there due to a green screen effect as now. Do you know? What I'm, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, and you know when you first see that shark when it first jumps up on the orca and you're like, oh my god, that thing is like it looks real because you haven't seen anything like that before, and now you've seen nothing but CGI sharks and Sharknado. You know what are they up to? You know, and it just it it doesn't work. It uh-huh. takes you right out of the movie. Um, I think one of the best examples of mixing CGI and practical effects might be Jurassic Park. You know, the the second they get a little too heavy handed on the CGI, you start to get. You start to notice, and that takes you out of the story. You're like, ah, oh, that's CGI. Ah, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm now watching a movie. I'm reminded that I'm watching a movie. Yeah. So, you know, that in the 80s, they didn't have CGI. They just had those practical effects and those things. You know, sometimes it looked silly, but sometimes it looked more real than CGI does to me. Right. When, we were, when you and I were talking about starting this podcast, that was one of our ideas. I think it was going to be – we had talked about doing a, a podcast called Too Much CGI. Yeah, that was so much so into eighties. Uh, the the actual real, not real, but the actual like props and you know the the cheesy, uh, you know some <laughs> some are cheesy, you know effects that they would use back then. Oh, they were they were so much fun though. <laughs> they were so much more fun back then. But now yeah, it's like it's they'll take everything and just CGI it up. So I, I like zombie movies, and I knew when we jumped the shark on practical effects. At least in my mind, it's when you you had uh, George Romero did. You know, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and then, you know, he did Land of the Dead. And Land of the Dead, they decided, this is like about that time where they, Hollywood, they, they, Casey, (laughs) 
day. They decided, like, let's start skipping on practical effects and let's go to CGI. And I remember following, it was early internet, and I was following any kind of news I could get about this movie. And, you know, it was supposed to be practical. It was supposed to be working with um, Tom Savini again. And then the studio said, no, nah, we're going to do mostly CGI. And that's, that, I think, is the story. And when you watch the movie, it just doesn't have that same feel. And I do blame the CGI on it. I think you can go a little crazy with it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with uh, stuff today that they're making. Like, what's that that new movie that they just came out with recently? The the gangster movie. You're talking about the Irishman, yeah. What's it called? The Irishman. The Irishman, yeah. Where they seventy five year old, eighty eighty year old men are, are their faces are CGI, and you can't get past that. I have look bad. I I thought it looked terrible. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't get you. I could I couldn't get through the movie. It's too long. They have uh, I think it's De Niro playing like uh, uh, his face is CGI'd and he's supposed to be in his twenties. But he in one of the scenes he's beating up this guy, and instead of using a, a body double, it's still seventy five year old De Niro kicking this guy on the street playing a 20 year old and it looked, but it looks like a seven year old kicking him. Do you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> so it's a young face and like an old body. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's just terrible. I mean, I, oh, wow. I didn't enjoy it at all. Well, that's the kind of thing that Hollywood wants to do now. Maybe it's cheaper. I guess it's cheaper, easier to do maybe, but yeah, not a big fan of that direction. Um, one of the things that Joe talked about is, one of the, the things that I absolutely love about Jaws, right? The fact that we didn't see that shark a whole lot was very um, Alfred uh, Hitchcock-like, right? When you saw um, uh, Psycho and she was killed in the shower, I don't think you saw any like actual stabbings. You just saw a bunch of a montage of really fast, choppy stuff, and your brain put all that together. Yep, And that's what I really like about a movie. I, I hate when they just, hey, we now have the technology to show you what everything looks like. Let's, let's just make it so in CGI. And it just takes a little bit of the imagination out of it. I like filling in the blanks because that's how I grew up watching movies. Not yeah. plot holes per se, but just like atmospheric things and you know visual things. You got to sort of fill in the blanks when you don't see it. And sometimes that can be even scarier because you don't know you know what you're missing right yeah i'm not a big fan of just showing everything on there like they could have told that story in the irishman without having to show a 75 year old body with a 20 year old's face like we just didn't need to see that they could have told the story a different way yeah absolutely man so you want to get into the interview here yeah this is a good one all right man so uh do us a favor if you like this interview click that subscribe button you can follow us on instagram deluxe edition pod uh, same thing on Twitter. We have a website, deluxeedition.show. Facebook, Deluxe Edition. Yet another pop culture podcast. <laughs> I love when you read it. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just Deluxe Edition pod everywhere. And uh, yeah, just click on that subscribe button. iTunes reviews, they help a lot. Anything you can do to help, share, whatever. Tell your friends about us. We're, we're enjoying this. We're going to be around for a while, so we wouldn't mind growing it a little bit. You know, there's a, I know there's a huge audience of people that you know, enjoy all the stuff that we like, so we want to know who they are. We want to all do this together, so definitely share us around. We'd very much appreciate it. Yeah, we have some uh, great shows lined up uh, in the future. Please click that subscribe button.
All right, and here's our interview with Mr. Joe Alves. Joining us today is an Oscar-nominated production designer best known for his work on the Steven Spielberg classics Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Jaws, Mr. Joe Alves. How are you, sir? Great. Great. Wonderful to have you. You've done so much great stuff in Hollywood, especially everything that I've ever fallen in love with as a, as a child and a teenager. Seems you've had your name on it, which is really an impressive resume. I was fortunate, you know, um, it was the studio system then, and uh, you did a lot of things that your name never got on. It's amazing. Uh, the credits accelerated in, in the 70s, but prior to that, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you could work as an assistant art director, like I did on with Hitchcock on Torn Curtain, and get no credit at all on the screen. It's, it, it, the heads of the department would get credit. It's amazing. Uh, things changed a lot in the, in the 70s. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate to, to work with some great people, uh, you know, Spielberg and, uh, of course, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, and I think you worked with um, John Carpenter, too. You, you did uh, Escape from New York, which is an amazing movie. I did movie. Escape from New York, and then I was an advisor on Starman. And I did second unit on that. Wow. Yeah. So you're listed on your IMDb page. You're listed as a uh, art director and a product of a, uh, yeah, I guess it was a product designer. Production designer. Production designer. So I'm not really sure what the difference is between those two roles. I was hoping you could sort of tell me. There is no difference. Basically, Hmm. let me put it this way. Uh, The production design credit came with William Cameron Menzies. Gone with the Wind. Prior to that, it was all art direction, art direction. And it pretty well stayed that way. And a couple people in the 50s got production design. And then more in the 60s and 70s, it became more popular. But basically, you're an art director. And they've elevated that to you're designing the production, like on Sugarland Express or Night Gallery, where I did so many sets. I was an art director. It wasn't... Uh, until they started changing that and saying, oh, it's more prestigious to be a production designer. But actually, according to the Academy Awards, there was no production design credit for a long time. On Close Encounters, I got production design credit. My assistant would, would be Dan Lamino, was the art director. So they had to actually bring me down into art direction. But it's basically the same thing. It's just a different title. Uh, today, uh, on uh, like on, on, on Close Encounters, I, I was a production designer. I had an art director, a couple set designers, decorator. Today, on like uh, uh, Star Wars, they have a production designer and maybe 10 art directors. Huge, huge departments. And people, you know, so it's just, it's changed quite a bit. But basically... It's exactly the same job. Uh, if, if you're heading it, today they call you a production designer. A few years ago, you, you would just be the art director. So what type of things did you directly influence? Were you the one who you know, drew what Snake Plissken's going to look like? Or are you the one who designed what the boat's going to look like in Jaws? How far into what we see had your, you know, had your touch? Okay. As as a production designer, 
you start with a script and you you break it down and you're responsible for everything visual everything, everything. uh finding locations you know the the various machinery uh the shark i got very involved in designing that and then as it develops okay for an example let me say i started on jaws before steven did people are shocked about that but but what happened was david brown uh dick zanuck and uh, zanuck and brown were big producers they did uh the sting and butch cassidy sundance kid and they did this small movie called sugarland express with a new young director steven spielberg uh so i got to know them pretty well now i'm a staff art director that means uh i'm in the art department and when i finish one project the head of the department goes oh you're going to do this you're going to do night tower or you're going to do this television movie and and so forth and that's how i got sugarland express and steven said oh yeah i know joe cuz we did a couple night galleries uh and uh so it 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 went that way but on jaws uh david brown's wife helen gurley brown who was the editor of cosmopolitan magazine read their scally sheets of this book called jaws and said uh i thought it would be uh make a pretty good movie so they had no money uh i mean they had no budget they were not involved with the studio yet so david called me and said if i sell you send you to the galleries during your spare time could you do some concept sketches based on the book that anything with a shark in it so i went to the head of the department and the fact that the zetica brown was so prestigious I was working on a television movie and they had a lot of locations so I didn't have to uh, go check them out more so I had pretty much a lot of free time so I started doing sketches of uh, sharks and I did about 30 charcoal renderings by 11 by 16 and I would go to Spielberg and talk to him about this idea of this this shark movie and the studio wasn't looking too excited about doing a shark movie and steven yeah they they had somebody else planned to direct it and they didn't like his attitude towards it and steven and i talked about if we did this we would make we should do a full size big shark in the real ocean not in a a studio lake or something so basically that that's how that developed and then steven got aboard and uh we had a big meeting in marshall green's office who was head of production we had all the department heads there basically and uh an unusual thing happened uh, St- uh marshall sort of liked the idea of the jaws thing because he lived on a boat so ba- basically i wasn't being paid by jaws to do these drawings they were just absorbing the money because they they didn't have a movie yet they had nothing and so the idea that we wanted to Steven and I wanted to do a full-size shark like 25-foot shark in the real ocean. So um after I did my presentation, Marshall asked the head of the effects department that was in the meeting, "Can you guys make that shark?" And and they said, "No, it's never been done. No one's ever made a 25-foot shark in in the real ocean. It it would take a year, year and a half to do it. Besides we have bigger movies to do like the Hindenburg and Marshall got pretty upset and said Jaws could be a bigger movie than the Hindenburg and everybody laughed of course it was you know this little shark movie so that's how it started basically 
So the year and a half, as I was put collected my drawings and everybody left, Marshall called me back and he says, can you get the shark made? I, being ambitious and young, I said, yeah. He says, well, take it off the lot. Don't do anything on the lot, which is very unusual because everything was done in-house. You know, if there was a Paramount movie, you did all the, everything in Paramount. Uh, so anyway, um, that's basically how it started. And so then I was responsible for designing the shark, putting a team together. That's pretty much not normally what a production designer does, but you oversee some of that stuff anyway. So basically, I, I got that started, and then I started looking for the locations and met with Peter Benchley, asked him where he, designed, he wrote the book, and he was an East Coast guy. His parents lived in Nantucket. And uh, so basically, he didn't have any specific places. He said, uh, it, various, uh, Sag Harbor, Covington, uh, Montauk. As I say, there's a small movie, so there was nobody else on the movie at the time. So I went and I scouted it by myself and drove hundreds of miles looking at beaches that were covered with snow. <laughs> he said uh, to go to Nantucket and see his parents. His father, Nathaniel Benchley, lived there, good writer, and his mother. And so, uh, I got to Woods Hole and I took the boat to Nantucket. Oh, I asked him, I said, what about these islands? Because what I needed uh, was not only uh, the nice little village, I needed uh, a section of water that was uh, a bay that was like 25 feet deep that could uh, accommodate the the shark. Uh, Bob Matty had had made this platform shark that would would sink and we needed 25 feet and uh, it had an arm that came up on a, on a track. Uh, and uh, we needed a small tide. And in the West, the tides are like 12 feet. But, you know, we're looking uh, for a small tide. Anyway, long story short, I started to go to Nantucket, and it was water was so rough that I turned the boat around, and I'm in Woods Hole, and I see a boat to Martha's Vineyard. And uh, I said, oh, I'll, I'll go look at that. So I, I went to Martha's Vineyard and was blown away, you know, because uh, Edgartown was perfect, Benemsha was perfect for the fishermen. And then they had a bay there that was 25 feet with a two-foot tide. So to me, you know, that locked it in. But to answer your question, basically the production designer, art director, is responsible for everything visual, and then you bring in the wardrobe department and you bring in the special effects and you bring in the, uh, the props and they all coordinate there because the props have to work with the sets and the costumes have to work with the period and, and everything like that. So you're really the, the key sort of visual person and obviously you're working with the director uh, closely depending on how visual the directors are. Some of them are quite visual. Others just let you take care of that aspect, and they focus on the actors and the script. But anyway, I just wonder why we're talking about that. There's a book I have out called Joel's Designing Jaws, and and that breaks down everything. And I just want to show you briefly. uh, See, this is like a a set breakdown, and you go through every page and break down scene by scene 
what's needed. And, and then you, you start bringing people in to accommodate that. So, uh, but that's a, the book has, has been very well received uh, because it, it's different. It's a, it's a book about designing, not, not the director or the writers or the actors. It's about how we are on the other side of making a movie you know, function. I think that stuff is absolutely fascinating. You said something earlier that I thought was interesting too, because I always think about how it works behind the scenes and, and, you know, we see the, we see the actors and we get to know the director and we say, okay, they're the ones responsible for the movie. And we all know that there's really a bigger team. And the thing that you said that was really interesting was there's things sometimes you do that are uncredited. So I've always heard that you actually helped shoot some of part two as a director. And maybe that's how you got your, role as a director as part three is yeah that what what, yeah what happened was this is interesting uh jaws 2 i was just finishing uh close encounters and i was coming back and uh it was interesting because i was in pensacola i was in actually mobile alabama but there was this girl i met who had greyhound dogs and uh, sundays she'd go run it on the beach and i went to this beach at pensacola and I said, my God, if we ever did Jaws 2, this would be a great place to do it because there were no boats and no traffic. And we had a lot of problems in Martha's Vineyard in the summer with all the boats. Anyway, I got back and I understand they had a director, John Hancock, had started Jaws 2. Now get this, I made The Shark with Bob Maddy, Roy Arbogast, and a few guys away from the studio. We made three sharks. And it cost about $250,000 at that money at that time. I came on, they had started making or remaking the shark because they destroyed the the first ones on the studio lot. And they had already spent $2 million. Because what happens when you're on the lot, if you have a successful movie, they're doing a sequel or something, oh, they charge all that money to that picture, you know, because it's going to make money. So anyway, um, so what happened was uh, uh, Zanuck and Brown offered me uh, the production design job. I was sort of didn't know if I was so excited about doing it. I actually directed a sequence of Jaws. Uh, Stephen left me with, uh, wanted me to direct the uh, Kittner boy getting eaten on a raft. And uh, so I did that. So besides doing all the storyboards, I, I was really familiar with how to direct, you know, uh, it's just, uh, I knew where the camera was going to go. I knew what the action was going to be. So that transition wasn't difficult. So Zanuck and Brown, they said, we'll not only make you production designer, we'll make an associate producer. So you'd be involved with all parts of it and you could direct second unit. So uh, that was great. Uh, Steven called me and he said, you know, I've done this movie in 1941. I'd like to have you design it. And, and and I was very close to Stephen. You know, we, we did three movies together. I said, they're offering me, you know, these three positions. He said, I'll give you the same thing. But he didn't have a deal. You know, it was just maybe it was going to happen. And, you know, Hollywood, if you don't have a deal, it could be forever, you know. So I went with Zanuck and Brown. And, and I ended up, what happened was, John Hancock, a uh, nice guy, 
he and his wife, Dorothy Christian, were rewriting the script and doing things. And John was having a hard time with the film. And uh, we were on the day of shooting, and he wanted to wrap like three o'clock. It was the summer. We had a lot of light. And Tom Dorner, who was the production manager, who was the first assistant on the first jobs, we went down and talked to him. John, you know, you got to keep shooting. Well, I'm having some problems. So I, I started doing some second unit for him. And then I was organizing the shark, all the shark stuff we're going to shoot in Pensacola, Florida, Navarre Beach. And so I said, okay, well, you guys work on this. I'm going to go down and see how the, the shark's doing with Bob Maddie and his team. So I left, went down uh, and see how the, the shark routine was going. And uh, I heard that they fired John. So I uh, got back and... Uh, talked to Verna Fields, who won the Academy Award for editing Jaws. And she was now vice president. And they said they were, they were going to cancel the, the movie. And I thought, well, why are they going to do that? You know, we're building the shark. We could. And so I talked to Ned Tannen, who was the head of production at the time. He said, what, you and Verna want to direct it, co-direct it? Because Verna and I both did some second unit on the first one. And so an editor, she's certainly knowledgeable. But the... Directors Guild wouldn't let us do that. But there was a, a director, Jeanneau Schwart, which uh, did like 23 episodes of Night Gallery, and I really liked his, his method of working. He was, you know, he always have a way of finding something to do it a little bit better than you would think it could be done. And uh, he, had done, he did a movie called The Bug, and Verna looked at it, and we went to Ned. And so anyway, we, we got him the job, to direct it. We brought Carl Gottlieb back in to rewrite it. And then we were so far behind schedule wise, we had to start shooting. And so I think I directed uh, 85 days of second unit. So Juno uh, could focus on the actors, you know, a lot of problems. Uh, uh, you know, with some of the actors, uh, Roy Scheider didn't really want to do the sequel. And it was difficult. It was a very, very difficult shoot. And now here's the problem, too, is that on Jaws, uh, Stephen, as well as Verna and myself, because I did all these storyboards. I mean, I did like 200 of these things. So we knew, you know, what we wanted. And some people said, oh, you didn't use the shark too much because it didn't work. That's not true. Basically, it was more of a Hitchcock thing. We used the barrels to say the shark's coming and, you know, and the uh, the little, uh, what was it? Uh, it was not a raft, but the, the thing that turned around, uh, the wharf that turned around and, and the girl getting pushed around without the shark. And that was all Spielberg's concept of not overusing it. Now, Shark had a bad reputation because, as I told you, a year to a year and a half it was take to make the Shark. Well, we started building the Shark probably November, late November of 73. The book came out in February 74, and the studio said, we're going to start shooting in two months. So we didn't have the year, year and a half. We had four or five months. So Bob and his crew were working night and day to try to get this thing ready. And Stephen 
ended up shooting everything we could possibly shoot without the shark. And then basically I would go to Bob and I would say, you got a shark work because there's three or the left to right, right to left shark and then one on a big crane. And he says, well, maybe the left to right. So then I go back to Stephen. I think maybe the left to right's work. And he would go through the storyboards and say, oh, here, here, uh, 182, 83 to four. We could do that. Let everybody know. And I would say, if it worked, we shot it. If it didn't, it was a test. And, and that's basically why it took so long and why things didn't work. And we we're over budget and over schedule. And when we got back, we were not heroes. They threw the shark in the back lot and let it rot. They sold the boat, uh, the Orca. Uh, then they had to buy it back. So uh, we went through this whole period. Uh, the idea that there ever was going to be a Jaws 2 was nonsense. But in any case, on Jaws 2, now it's studio into it. And they wanted more shark, more shark, more shark, because they figured the more shark, that's what the people wanted. Well, I shot a lot of shark and Jeanneau shot a lot of shark. But then... Berna and Janot cut it down, cut it down to it was a more reasonable presentation. But uh, so that was my involvement in getting to do a lot of second unit and, and shooting. And then Jaws 3 is another story. Mm. Okay, that makes total sense then. Yeah, there's always stories. I've heard these stories about the three different sharks, you know, being on the back of a truck going down the highway. That just must be an amazing sight to behold but and you always heard the stories about you know it didn't work it didn't work and then suddenly it worked and it worked just in time and you were able to get the movie done and you know steven was able to shoot a lot of the talking scenes so it's really interesting to understand how all that is put together the pressure of hitting a deadline i've always wondered does a studio say do they come in and say hey you guys are doing amazing stuff here we're really feeling what you're doing we'll give you a little bit more time or a little bit more money or do you always feel like there is a deadline there is a a money number to hit and it's high pressure and maybe not as fun as it seems like it might be on a on a movie set i think they try to cancel the movie four times really wow they were not really friendly uh, uh, i got to tell you uh marshall green was was very his head of production he he was uh, very helpful. Sid Seinberg, his wife was in the movie. Uh, not that that saved the movie, but it didn't hurt. He, they would come and visit. But there was a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on Stephen. And let me tell you why. Stephen's concept was that the th- three guys out on a boat alone. He wanted to see no boats out there. He wanted to see these guys totally isolated. In fact, Shaw breaks the radio so that Scheider can't call and say, hey, help us. We, you know. So, but the problem is this. When I scouted that wonderful bay, that was in December. And there was nobody out there. Come June and July, the boats from Hyannis were just streaming in. And there's so many people. And Stephen didn't want to see any boats. And even though we were shooting later July, most August, still a lot of boats. So we had to send little runners out there to, could you move? Could you? Stay? And some people cooperated. Other people just wouldn't do it, you know. So Stephen would sit there and wait until the boats drifted away so he could get the shot. And, of course, the studio was upset. Why isn't he shooting? Why, you know, well, he doesn't want to see. Well, today, you know, we could just 
you know, uh, with CGI, just get rid of all that stuff. But we couldn't then. So, so that was very time consuming. And then waiting for the shark. Let me just say a simple thing, like the barrels coming and going under. All right, we're going to shoot the barrels tomorrow. It's uh, storyboards. You know what that takes? That takes the day before figuring where you're going to shoot, going out there and, and laying a two-ton piece of cement block with a shiv, with a cable, so that when the, shark, the, the barrel came like this, the cable would drop it down to the, you know, to the anchor down there. And bring so just a simple shot like that required a whole day in advance to do that. Uh, using the shark required, which shark are we using? we got to prepare for that one. And of course, what happens is electronics and, and uh, salt water don't like each other, <laughs> you know? And as soon as you put it down, it starts eating. And so then Bob had to find different ways of doing it, so... It was endlessly uh, difficult. Uh, and as I say, w when we got back, we had some stuff. We were going to do something on the back lot lake. Uh, and uh, so it was interesting at this point. Studio wasn't crazy about the picture. We're over budget, over schedule. Uh, and I was concerned whether people were going to laugh at the shark because the shark made funny noises because of the, the valves. So we didn't have the John Williams music, you know. So after a shot and Steven said cut, everybody would laugh at that silly shark, you know. So my concern was the audience is going to laugh at this silly shark. Um, so they had a screening in Texas I wasn't at that one. And Stephen came to me. He said, you know, Joe, we got four screens. I think we can get five. I'd like to get a couple shots. One where the shark is hitting the boat. Show me the way to come home. Boom, boom. And you see the hull starting to split and water coming in. And then I want to see the head when Dreyfus goes down and, and loses uh, his little shark teeth. I want to see the head. So... I said, okay, so I have a, a shop. I, I know how to build things. I've built part of my house. And I built two hulls. And the one hull, which showed me the way to go, we shot that in my driveway with a, with a hose. And uh, somebody had a hose, and Stephen was shooting that. And then the other one was we shot in Verna Fields, uh, who's the editor, uh, in her swimming pool. And I made another hull with a hole in it, and somebody – just stole the head out of the makeup department and Steven got a camera and we shot the head, you know, when you go down and drivers freaks out and the head just floats out. So we had uh, in uh, Lawndale uh, the second screening and uh, I was there with most of the crew and all the executives, Lou Wasserman, Sid Scheinberg and what have you. Well, they didn't laugh. They screamed. The audience screamed. And Stephen was so right. That other head in the, the hole just freaked everybody out. So what happened is, I think for the first time, the studio realized, gee, I think we've got a, a successful movie here. Get this. After all our, where we were put down, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. The shark never worked. Um, this young director, 
So they went back, I think, in the bedroom, and they said, you know, maybe we should make this a wide release. Now, get this in the summer. That was never done. Uh, it was big releases were done uh, October, November for the Academy Award, you know, thing. And so maybe they would release in, you know, half a dozen theaters or something. They decided to release it in 450 theaters, which is the biggest summer release at that point. Now, of course, it's thousands, but that was huge. And within the first week or so, uh, it made its money back, you know. Uh, and uh, so that that's, that's a story of Jaws. It was just like a, a fight to get it done and, and then not being well received. And then suddenly it's a big success. Right, yeah. And uh, what helped with that is our, it carries over to the next picture. It's interesting to me. So when you said that they wanted to shut down Jaws 2 a few times, I'm thinking that's super weird because Not of the... Not 2, Jaws 1. I'm sorry. I thought you said it was 2. Got it, no, yeah. Jaws, Jaws 1, they were going to shut down. Jaws but 2, you know, they, they were pretty well... With, with Jaws 2, they... Oh, I, I excuse me. No, they were going to... Yeah. Jaws 1, they were going to shut down for it. Jaws 2, they were going to cancel. Yeah, they were going to just... Yeah, you're right. After they fired John Hancock they were going to end it. And then I brought in Jeannot. So yeah, you're right. I, I was getting confused on that. By the time they get to three, there must be so much pressure. There must be so much momentum to make something great. And you have the formula. You've probably, you know, by now you figured out how to make the shark work in seawater. So this is the one that I remember the most. Cause I'm, I'm 45. I was, you know, a, a kid when I remember seeing all the 3d movies were starting to come out. And this one I got excited about. And, uh, you know, but it was really different because he decided we're not going to do the beach thing anymore. We're going to do SeaWorld, which to a kid who's 10 years old, you know, Disney World, SeaWorld, those places are the, the mecca, work, right? Yeah. So it was really kind of freaky to see this happening in a, in a park. But I'm curious how that change came about. Why did you break the formula of doing the beach? Well, it was interesting. Um, I was doing a movie called uh, The Ninja Herb Kirshner was directing. It was on it for six, seven months. And uh, there was for Fox, and it got canceled because Fox got a new owner. I came back to uh, Universal, came back to Hollywood because I was uh, back east in New York doing it. And I went to see Verna Fields because I always went to see Verna. She had an office and then we'd go hang out there, Carl Gottlieb and I. And we're good friends with her. And, so she said, you know, Joe, they've been ma- making this thing, Jaws 3, People 0. Uh, Joe Dante was going to direct, and it was really a script about making fun of the people that made their most successful movie, which is pretty disgusting in, in that that was their, you know, to take the people that made their big movie and make fun of them. Oh, the shark didn't work. Anyway, uh, I think the word is, Stephen got really upset with this. So they canceled that. And nobody was interested in a three because there, there weren't that many sequels. Or, you know, I think uh, Stallone had a couple. What was that thing he was doing there? To, uh, he had a number of sequels. Uh, Rambo, Rockies. Rambo, yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, so, so there wasn't too many threes at that time. And so the studio didn't really want to do it. And they sold the rights to Alan Landsberg who did sort of low-budget television things like That's Incredible and stuff like that. 
So Verna said, why don't you go talk to Landsberg and try to save this franchise, you know, because we worked so hard on the first two to have, you know, uh, in a, a sort of a cheap television producer make a ripoff. So I went to uh, Landsberg and uh, he told me that they had a rough script and it was at a theme park. Uh, uh, Richard Matheson had written it. And um, why don't I go scout some of the, the theme parks, the, the water parks. And, uh, and he says, I'll let you produce it. I said, I really don't want to produce it. Either I direct it or, you know, I don't want to be involved in and uh, having directed so much of the, the second one. So he said, well, go scout with the Matheson and, and come back and see what you do. So anyway, we went and we looked at a number of theme parks, obviously, Orlando, and we looked at another one in Northern uh, Florida, and there was a, a little concession there that had uh, a, a movie. You walk in and you see a 3D movie, underwater movie, and uh, with glasses and it was incredible w with all the underwater stuff you know the various uh animal life and you know the seaweed and stuff and i thought wow this is i like the depth of this and so i came out and and uh, richard said what jaws it three in 3d i, I said i said no jaws 3d so you take the onus off the three and just have a Jaws with a 3D. And uh, so I got back and uh, what I did was, it was Thanksgiving. I was at my sister's house and I did a, a drawing of a shark with a Jaws 3D, 3D coming at you. I showed it to Landsberg and he flipped out. He said, let's go to the studio. So we went to Scheinberg, showed it to Steinberg by illustration. He said, can I have this? He said, of course you can have it. You're the president. He said, I want to take it to Wasserman. I want to show it to Lou. So, <clears throat> who was ahead of everybody, you know. And uh, they, fl they flipped out. The whole concept of doing Jaws in 3D. So, uh, that got me the directing gig. But, uh, guys, let me tell you, uh, I had no idea that First of all, it was old equipment. They didn't have any new stuff. And a cameraman was just f freaking out because he called it the Ultra Jam because, you know, it was... Anyway, and I said to Landsberg, I says, we have to start building some sharks. Oh, no, no, I've got a lot of stock footage of sharks. I said, no, no, we got to build a shark. And it's got to be bigger because we're going to have Simon McCorkendale in it, you know, so it had to be like 35 feet. In any case, needless to say, it, it was without a question very difficult working in 3D. We, we had Aeroflex ended us building cameras. We shot a week with the old stuff. It didn't work with the convergence, so we had to reshoot. But we got small Aeroflex underwater stuff. But boy, we'd see dailies and rubbing our eyes, getting that convergence together. Uh, then I had this cheap producer and. Uh, and it was very, very difficult. Uh, the, the, probably the most difficult thing was the fact that I did not have final cut. So when I made Jaws, I cut it the same as one and two, about two, two hours. And uh, 
somehow Landsberg found out if we cut it down to 135, we could get five screenings a day instead of four. So they just cut it. Uh, So a lot of the substance of, you know, relationships, you know, Leah Thompson with John Pudge and all those things that were just cut. So that was a little disappointing. But um, critics beat me up for that. But the picture did quite well financially, you know. Yeah, it was a hit. So there's a director's cut somewhere in this head of yours. I have a can of 35 millimeter film. Really? (laughs) I know, but uh, well, it, it, you know, it 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 worked for what it, it it was, and the first three did very well. The fourth, I had nothing to do with that, and uh, but there seems to be an interesting thing because you mentioned Bill, uh, your age. A lot of directors, uh, a lot of people, uh, like my writer that did this, he's fifty-five. Greg Nicotero, who wrote the uh, foreword to this book, who did The uh, Walking Dead, he's around 55. And uh, who did I have a conversation with uh, recently? Kevin Smith, director of Lost. A lot, lot of Jaws influence. He's about 50. But uh, they grew up with Jaws. And like your, Jaws 3 became a big thing. And they, they were influenced. A lot of directors, J.J. Abrams, so... That was a period where they were, you know, getting of age that those movies were influencing them. And so what happened basically was interesting is after Jaws 3, I was tired of sharks and stuff. Didn't really think about it. Probably is the 30th anniversary of Jaws. I start meeting people and, and Greg Nicotero and I'd give them copies of my storyboards and people said, oh no, you should start selling these storyboards, which I do online, joelsmovieart.com. Been doing that. But then there's this interest in, in the movie that happened, you know, 30 years ago. And now this year is the 45th anniversary uh, of Jaws. And I get so much mail and so much interest in And the book that we, we brought out, that Titan uh, bought the book, uh, suddenly there was this incredible interest in this 45-year-old movie, and it's a lot because of the people that were young and inspired by those movies in the 70s are now at an age where they're doing something and they influence, you know, uh, things. So it's, it's quite interesting because if you look at the 70s, well, you have the Jaws, you have Closer Counters, you have Star Wars, you know, Godfather. It was an incredible period of time. Yeah, I always think about this too. Like my whole family, we're from the East Coast. We go to the Jersey Shore. There, there isn't a time that I remember being a kid walking out and thinking there could be a shark out there. Yeah, yeah. My my parents too. Like oh, I don't go in the water anymore. Maybe being behind the scene, you don't have that sort of. It doesn't impact you the same way. I would guess. No, it doesn't at all. Because uh, and what happened is Peter eventually realizes Peter's gone, but Wendy eventually his wife. He made a, what happened was, we were, we were just making a prop. Do you understand? It could have been Frankenstein. It could have been, you know, spaceships. It was just a prop. And we had little idea that it would affect the shark population because it gave these people that wanted to go out and kill things a justification, you know, and they just started killing sharks like crazy because, oh, Jaws did it. And then people 
you know, obviously were afraid of it. So Peter and when they spent a lot of time trying to conservation for sharks and stuff like that. But we had no idea. It wasn't the intent to scare people from the ocean. It was really, if you think about the movie, three guys and a monster. It, you know, yes, there's somebody got it on the beach, a little kitten or kid. But it wasn't ravishing, killing, killing. It was just three guys against. And that's why the movie, I think, really worked. Because it, it, it became uh, them against it, you know. But when it came out, it did affect people unbelievably, you know. Uh, and uh, I hear about that quite often. To this day, a lot of people just can't go in the water. You know? Yeah. 45 years later and people are still scared of uh, a shark that you made. Yeah, I know. It's pretty it's, crazy, man. Yeah, I'm not happy about that. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased that they recognize a really a fine movie. And uh, I would say a couple of years ago, uh, the Catalina Museum did a shark exhibit that lasted six months and I had a lot of my original drawings and Greg Nicotero had made the characters life-size incredibly. We had the cage. We had, we had a lot of good stuff. But in any case, they were having a screening, not on a big screen. I hadn't seen Jaws in years. And I thought, well, I don't have to see it again. And then uh, Julie, who was running the thing, she said, oh, Joe's going to talk about it after the movie. So my wife said, oh, I got a seat for here. You sit down and watch the book. And you know, guys, here's what happened. It was, it'd been so long, I was not looking at whether the shark was working or what I did. or this. I was just enjoying it as a movie. And I realized the performances, those three guys, and when we needed the shark, it did its job, you know. And I thought, I came out and I said, my God, that really is a good movie. You, you know? I mean, it's, you have to be away from it so you lose your personal involvement and just judge it as a film. And I think it's one of Stephen's best films, you know, it just, it really works. Yeah. It's a great movie and it still holds up to this day, man. It's, uh, it does. And you know why Casey, because you look at the, the wardrobe or the hairstyles, it wasn't radical. You know, you say, yeah, people sort of wear their hair, you, you know, they had the mayor had that silly uh, coat or jacket, but you know people who wear things like that today. So, so it, it wasn't dated, I don't think. No. <clears throat> so, Joe, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. I have one one final question for you. I heard you say earlier about uh, Steven Spielberg taking a lot of time to wait for those boats to move, and uh, nowadays you could use the CGI to erase those those types of things. Yeah. Uh, if you could go back and redo everything with the technology today that, that they have. Would you do it? How do you feel about CGI and, and stuff like that? Yeah, of course, I get asked that question a lot. I have mixed feelings about CGI because if we did JAWS and CGI with the same restraint, uh, but I could do a, a bit of a shark head so they would have some relationship. Like, you know, uh, I think... It would be fine. In fact, it would be probably easier. Sometimes maybe the shark would be too slick. The problem I had with CGI when I started using is they would have 
not one shark, they'd have 10,000 sharks. They multiply. If they have a car crash, they have dozens of car crashes. They they overused it because they could use it. And I think they're getting more restraint now. I think you've got to be a little more subtle. The, the idea is to, you want to, you know, make it believable to the audience. And one big shark is pretty scary. But some of these sharks, they all have dozens of them out there. Of course, you know, all right. Our guy's going to get it. I think any technology just has to be controlled because basically what we're doing is we're telling stories and how best can we tell the story and what tools can we use to tell the story? Is it a great location? I think there's so much CGI. There's just too much green screen. I mean, for an example, in close encounters, you know, we went and shot the devil's tower but when I have Melinda Dillon and Dreyfus climbing up the, the, the mountain, just go over and look at the big arena, I built a seven-story mountain on rollers that they could climb up in front of a huge front projection screen. And I built the, sh- the, sh- the, the arena, because I had a thing recently with Spielberg uh, spoke, uh, the art directors are honoring me and Stephen did a video and he said he had yet, he has never worked on a set as big as the one in Close Encounters to this day. Uh, and it was, was so big. Well, today they wouldn't build a set like that, but it was pretty interesting to have that size, you know, of filmmaking where you're there and it's real. Mm-hmm. I know it's just a different, different attitude today. Yeah, another thing is different. I heard you mention in that Kevin Smith interview that you did about how uh, you would you like today people can look up on Google how to find something crazy like a big mountain like that. But you you had to drive how many miles to find something like that? Three thousand miles, yeah, <laughs> three thousand miles. To, and I I was saying this because I was at the Art Directors Guild that gave me an award, and I was saying you know. I had to drive 3,000 miles looking for a mountain. I said, but you guys would just Google it. I said, but you miss all the scenery along the way, you know. I mean, it was, it, it was a, it was a long drive. But, you know, I went, you know, through arches and all these w- wonderful places, Mount Rushmore, over to Devil's Tower, and you, you're driving. I was by myself. That movie started with just me and Steven. And then, and just briefly, it was going to be a really low, low-budget sci-fi until Jaws came out and then Steven expanded his concepts and I expanded the sets and uh, so one success helps lead to another you know yeah good stuff man we, we we enjoy your work very much and we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this and uh, tell everyone where they can find you your book all that good stuff yeah the, the book is uh, on Amazon and I, I think, I mean, I really loved it because it's not about me so much, but it's about, you know, the, the shark making the stuff and the relationship with the, uh, the director and uh, the storyboards and how I put my crew together, you know. And yeah, so it's a different, different approach and it's uh, pretty complete and it's on Amazon. It's not very expensive. It's like 26 bucks or something. Awesome. Well, thank you again, man. Are you on Twitter, Instagram, any social media at all? Oh, I have uh, this, uh, joelsmovieart.com. Okay. And that's where you could buy my storyboards, 
and illustrations and all that stuff. Great. Yeah, we'll link to it all and make sure we can send some traffic to you. You're doing great stuff. Nice talking to you guys. Great talking to you too. Thank you, Joe. Take care.